Hello and welcome to the Seacast. Wherever you may be, however you may be listening, we appreciate you for joining us. Please be sure to follow and check out our socials via Instagram, Twitter, Threads, TikTok, anything else. I think that's it. There may be more, but that's it. Uh, our handle is at the Seacast Podcast, or you can reach out to us via email at the Seacast Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, for today's episode, we will be discussing the film The Prestige. We always encourage our listeners to reach out to us with questions or film suggestions. Um, today's film was suggested by one of you, um, and so we appreciate it and we are fortunate enough to have him join us today. So thank you, Connor, for the recommendation, and thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Happy to be on the podcast and uh, get to talk about one of my favorite movies. Awesome, awesome. So before we jump in here, um, some quick info on the film. Uh, this film was released in 2006 and directed by the great Christopher Nolan. Score was done by David Julian. Writers Jonathan Nolan, Christopher Nolan, Christopher Priest. Um, starring great cast lineup here. Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, Michael Caine, Scarlett Johansson, and Rebecca Hall with a runtime of two hours and ten minutes. A uh, quick synopsis on the film, in case you haven't seen it yet, or if you have and you ha it's been a while. Um, after a tragic accident, two stage magicians in 1890s London exchange in a battle to create the ultimate illusion while sacrificing everything they have to outwit each other. So without further ado, let's jump into it. So, Connor, let's start with you since this one is your film suggestion. Uh, so first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and then... The big ultimate question, what made you suggest this film? Uh, go ahead, take it away. Yeah, um, so I'm Connor Watkins Hsu. Um, I'm pretty active on Letterboxd. I've seen about a thousand films, and I think my reviews are around 700 on there. So I really love getting to discuss movies, watch them, review them. And I've been doing this probably since about 2019. I think I started writing reviews and kind of taking movies more seriously. Um, and this is one of the, the first movies that I watched whenever I was kind of approaching movies in a different way and um, really stuck with me since then. I love Christopher Nolan movies. I think he's he's probably the most accessible, like really artistic director. I think, you know, so many people know and love his movies, whether it be Interstellar or The Dark Knight. Um, Inception as well is really popular, but this is kind of one that a lot of people... Um, you know, it, it flies under the radar a lot of the time. So I, I probably like it for that reason. Um, but yeah, just like I said, whenever I first watched this film, it really stuck with me. Um, I love how tight it is and kind of, you know, magical, of course. Um, has a lot going for it that I, I love that he does in his other movies, but to me this one feels the tightest and kind of the most concise in how it's it's put together and then the actual story itself has a lot of depth to it, but it's also kind of simple on the surface. Awesome. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right when you say this kind of flies under the radar. Um, I love movies as well. Big Christopher Nolan fan. I had never seen this film. Um, so seeing this for the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, how, how did I not see this sooner? Um, it was a phenomenal film and I really enjoyed uh, the time I took to to watch it. Um, so let's go ahead. And um, if you're new listening to us, we do have a rating system here, but we're going to keep it more of a discussion uh, discussion style um, here today. And so we'll let our five categories kind of guide us and then you'll hear us 
throughout the conversation input what our ratings are. So our different categories are general acting score cinematography and story for each of those categories. We get to decide whether we want to give it a full star or a half star or in some cases, if you're Boston, three quarter star. Um, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and jump right in here. So I'll open this up to the floor. Uh, what do we what do we think about this film, guys? Um, I know we've done a Christopher Nolan film earlier in Interstellar, uh, but this is one of his earlier works. Um, what what do we think? What do we like about this film or not like? I remember watching this uh, movie come out. Not I didn't watch it when it came out, but I think that I was able to see it when I was in college, and I I love how like kind of dark and eerie. It is. Um, it just kind of has like a heaviness about it. Um, I absolutely love this movie. I love things that like give you a tiny little bit of a thrill. Um, yeah. And what, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, uh, like Alex said, this is also my first time watching the movie. Um, I haven't watched that many movies, so I'm not necessarily surprised that I hadn't seen it. But I was also like, wow, like, this is a, a good movie that I haven't seen um really enjoyed it the the twists and just trying to figure out like okay what's actually going on how's everything happening was fun for me I like movies that kind of make me follow it in a different way um and not that the story format was necessarily different but just you know the story kind of mimicked what they were talking about with the idea of magic tricks and like having the prestige at the end where they kind of reveal everything that's going on uh that was really enjoyable for me this was my second time watching it. And the first time I watched it, it was like my, one of my friends, Matias, was telling me about it. And he was like, this is the best movie. It's my favorite movie ever. The, the reveal is so big at the end. It's like it's such a it's like a mind teaser. You're going to love it. And like he hyped it up a lot. And so after my first watching, I was like, ah, it's all right. A little overrated. I was like, I don't, like I liked it. It's good, but not that good. Um, but my second time. And so I kind of walked away from that thinking like, eh, it's it's all right. It's, it's not my favorite Christopher Nolan movie, and it's probably lower, but it's it's whatever. Uh, but after this second uh, viewing, I liked it a lot more, actually. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot... Once, like, if you already know what's coming, it's it's you have more time to sit with the different um, clues and hints that they give throughout, um, and you can kind of read under the under the line a little bit. You're less distracted by the, the chase of trying to figure out, how is he doing it? What's going on? Um, and that, I think that made me actually appreciate the film a lot more. Yeah, I feel like that's one of my favorite things about Christopher Nolan movies is I, yep, I, it's a different movie the second time you watch yeah. it. Yeah. I absolutely love that. You get to the end, the big reveal happens, and then you're like, oh my gosh, that was that was cool, that was dope. And then you go back again, and you're like, oh, there were Easter eggs everywhere that I, mm-hmm. I just couldn't appreciate the first time because I didn't know what to look for. And so coming back, and I, I've seen this film multiple times, but... I completely agree with you, Boston. I feel like I still learned more about the characters on this watch again. Um, and I I love that type of movie watching experience. Yeah. I think he I think he's does it very much intentionally. I think that's part of his <laughs> like filmmaking process is to make a movie that you want to keep going back to and like that you even mm-hmm. need to keep going back to to really get the fullness out of it. And I I really, really appreciate that about Christopher Nolan as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I was talking definitely. with someone recently 
and they were like, oh, I didn't like Tenet. And I was like, you probably need to watch it again. Yeah, you need to watch that like <laughs> yeah. three or like, four more times to get anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've, I, I've only seen it once, but the only reason I know what was going on is because Alex was like, I was watching it with Alex. And so I was like, wait, so what? And he was like explaining to me all the way through. And I was like, okay, okay. I like know what's going on. I was like, yeah, I would have been so lost the first time. Yeah. I think I literally watched Tenet four times in like a month because I was like, I want to understand this so bad. <laughs> I gave up. <laughs> yeah, I, I think out of his films, that's one of the messier ones. But it's like, I think Christopher Nolan always has a way of like, even if he's doing something messy like that, or, you know, if we, if anyone has seen Oppenheimer recently, like he's willing to bite off like these gargantuan things. And like whether or not he's able to fully deliver what he wants to do, like you're you're still really interested and want to to buy into his vision and kind of keep coming back and like you know be, being like fully absorbed into the film. I think that's an experience I always tend to have. For sure, I feel like on this watch, you know, I was going through and I. <laughs> it's been a while, but I was reminded how. In, incredibly gorgeous Hugh Jackman is so that was a very pleasurable um movie watching experience for me <laughs> I don't know if I want to say pleasurable that sounds a little naughty but <laughs> <laughs> but I mean listen I was sitting next to my boyfriend and as soon as you know Scarlett Johansson came on screen he was like oh so you know like hey it goes both ways yeah we've we've all got something on screen that we're not too mad is there um but I was specifically like watching Christian Bale and and obviously Hugh Jackman. But, you know, I was trying to see if I could tell the difference between the twins mm-hmm. with like through Christian Bale's experience. And to be honest, I don't know that I I really paid enough attention to be able to tell other than, you know, what the dialogue provided Um, you know, where his wife was saying, oh, no, you don't mean that today. Or, you know, this specific scene where, well, you know, you're, you're bleeding more or whatever. Like, I don't understand how this is still bleeding. Other than that, it, you know, it was kind of difficult to track who, like, which twin was which. Um, and I kind of wish that, like, I was able to see that a little bit more. Did anyone else, like, try to focus on that this time around? I definitely was. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, I might, I might've been making this up cause I said this after I watched it with Anthony and Connor too. I'm pretty sure one of the twins has like a, a gash through the eyebrow. Like there's a, a cut through it. And so there's a, like a clear spot on the eyebrow. I swear I saw that at least in one scene. And so I was thinking, oh, that's, that's like a visual cue at least. That's the tell. Yeah. And then there was, there was, what was like delivery, like obviously the dialogue was the main medium for for the the tells and the reveals but i feel like there was the delivery too one of the twins was seemed a lot harsher um Mm -hmm. and like less emotionally available just in in Mm -hmm. general not just to Mm -hmm. the wife um that i thought i was picking up on but again i don't know i was i was i think like you i was hyper focusing on it a little bit and so i might have just been making up you know clues and tells (laughs) in my head because i was thinking about it so hard Yeah, so I I think this time for me, this is this is just my third time seeing it. I feel like this time I really noticed how absent, you know, the second brother playing Fallon is. And really we don't hear any dialogue from him until the very end, like once we kinda know that they are twins. Basically through all the other scenes, 
you know, he's just kind of in the shadows, like he's talking to Borden, the, you know, the main brother that we see, or, you know, whichever brother it is at any given time in the spotlight. We usually just kind of see him talking and then he like runs away or like anytime the wife's um, Sarah comes in or other characters come in, like he's just kind of quickly getting out of there. So this time I think I, I was like very keenly aware of the fact that they were hiding him, but I think you know, maybe Anthony, you could speak to this. Like as a first time watcher, you're not really thinking about that, obviously, because you don't know their brothers. You're just kind of like, okay, like the magician is the main guy and this is just his helper. So like, why do I care? But then, you know, obviously whenever you've seen it and when you get to the end, you you go back and you kind of think about that and want to, to overanalyze how we've interacted with both of them. Mm-hmm. Melissa, you were going to ask me something. Oh, no, I, I'm kind of the same question that Connor asked. Like, did you kind of notice any of that? Or how was your experience like watching and discovering? Did you did you have any inclination that they were brothers? Yeah, it's funny. Boston asked me the same question after we watched it. Um, the the like full realization or, or real thought of like, OK, these are brothers. Um obviously like came at the end with with the reveal um kind of like yeah like like right, right as he like tosses the the red ball to him uh across, across the bars or maybe he hands it off maybe i'm thinking of something different anyway it was like at the end the only thing that i kind of picked up on beforehand was when you know whichever brother it is at the time says to scarlett johansson's character like oh don't mind fallon uh you know he protects the things that i love and like that for me was one thing of like, okay, maybe like maybe they're related. I didn't think it was like twins. Maybe it was like brother. Um, but I, I did not at all think of that as like, you know, there being doubles. And I guess for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, um, Christian Bale's character, Christian Bale, <laughs> he plays two characters who are twin brothers who basically interchange lives uh, for the sake of like their magic. Um, and, and there's... As everyone's mentioned, there are a lot of Easter eggs to the fact that this is happening. Um, but clearly, as a first-time watcher, and maybe Alex, you can chime in as well since you watched it for the first time as well, uh, there was like no real understanding that that was happening, especially because from Hugh Jackman's character, Anjer, uh, the whole time he's exclaiming, he's adamant that like he's not using a double, he's not using a double, he's doing it some other way. So even that, as an audience member, you kind of think that as well, of like, okay, maybe this dude actually is magical, especially when you start realizing like there's this machine that Tesla built that can like actually duplicate things. And so maybe it's feasible in this world of the story that, you know, Borden is actually magical. Um, so yeah, so I, long answer to, I didn't really think that there were twins. I, I wasn't really picking up on it, um, but I think it's that was very much intentional. You know, they're trying to keep it under the rug, uh, which made the reveal so much more. Uh, I guess Im- impressive and and immediately when I realized it you start thinking about all the things of like okay yeah when he cut the fingers off and when it's like okay you mean it today like like all of those things start to make sense absolutely and I know we read off earlier how star-studded this cast was but 
Um, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about, you know, who who kind of gave, in your opinion, the best performance. Um, obviously, you have the big names of Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman, but we also got a very good performance from Rebecca Hall, who played Sarah, um, and even David Bowie playing Tesla, even though it's a small amount. Andy Serkis, obviously, is phenomenal in the many roles that he's played over the over the years. Um, and then even Scarlett Johansson, right? I didn't even realize she was in this film till I looked it up and saw her, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, wow, she's in this." Um, what do you guys? Who do you think gave the best performance? And were you drawn to one side versus the other? Obviously, you know Hugh Jackman was kind of a little bit of the victim, but also someone who was looking out for revenge um, for the loss of his wife. Whereas Christian Bale was, you know, got the sense was he the bad guy? Like. Did he intentionally kill his wife? And now that we realize, you know, there was twins until, like, you know, which one tied the knot? And um, I'm interested to see what you guys think about, you know, who did you think gave the best performance in terms of the actors? For me, I, I for me, I, I mean, yeah, it's hard because they're all just amazing. Uh, I feel like maybe Rebecca Hall or Christian Bale uh, was the best performance. I mean, Christian Bale was giving two different performances throughout um, and doing them great, right? Phenomenally, as he always does. Um, but uh, Rebecca Hall had a lot to do as well. Just the idea that you have to act out engaging with this really complex character that you know is different each time you're with them um, is really, really difficult. And she's maybe a little bit more of a side character, but um, I feel like just she packed a lot of emotional punches for me and she sold it really, really well. Um, and so I think she might be, um, the big one for me. Not to slight yeah. any of the other performances, of course. No, I kind of, I kind of agree. Like, I think that, I think that Hugh Jackman is great too, obviously. I, but I think the best part of his performance is when he had the body, when he had his double, and so we were seeing two very different characters portrayed by the same person. Um, and so I'm also wondering if that's part of the reason why Christian Bale's performance is so stands out so much more because he had to do that for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like if Hugh Jackman had another double for the entire movie, obviously he'd be right up, right up there. Like yeah. they are the same caliber actors in my opinion. Um, but I think that Christian Bale had a little bit more to showcase throughout the film. Yeah. Um, but still in that vein, I think that Rebecca Hall like kills it. I, I, you know, can just like putting yourself in that character's shoes of, of feeling she's being gaslit. She's being mm-hmm. gaslit, you know, and her husband, this man that she loves, like she's being literally played by him. That's, that's enough to drive a person crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like she's literally dealing with being tormented by this person that she loves. Um, and that's that's an insane like emotional and mental weight to carry. And I think that she did a really good job of portraying that and the little screen time that she had, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think I got to piggyback and I think just because of, you know, him being on screen for the most part, Hugh Jackman kind of takes the cake for me. I think just emotionally he's fully invested in the character, um, you know, with the theme of obsession running through the film. 
I feel like I'd, I really like see him being so obsessed and all that he does as a character, you know, his, I think really his performance kind of rubs off on the person watching because you, you're, you know, just constantly believing him and kind of going with what he thinks, even what, you know, with what Anthony says, like, you know, it must be, you know, something magical. He's not just using a double. Like, I think his belief kind of makes us believe as well. And, you know, he, he does a great job. I like what Melissa said as well. You know, whenever he's playing the double is is really one of the, the few moments of, like, comedy in the movie. So I really appreciate that from him. Um, as well, I'd, I'd, I'd echo that Christian Bale does such a great job. And I'd, I'd really be curious to hear him talk about kind of behind the scenes, like how he's thinking about himself, you know, how much, you know, maybe he knows that he's one brother or the other at different times in the movie mm. and how that kind of impacts his performance. Or, you know, maybe he kind of bought into the mystery and is kind of not fully aware, like, I'm this brother, I'm this brother. You know, maybe there's there's some of that. Um, I think something else I'll say is I really appreciate, I think, maybe it's just, you know, looking at this movie in hindsight, maybe it was different at the time, but... I like how despite all of these actors being such big stars in this movie, they feel kind of fresh. You know, the, I don't feel like I'm watching like these big blockbuster actors. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like because the, the movie is like so down to earth and kind of, you know, not this big production. You're able to kind of see them, you know, in a more human way than maybe we see in, you know, in, in The Dark Knight or some of the other movies that they've been in. Yeah, it's not the greatest showman. Honestly, I was just thinking, like, there's some line to draw here. There's some joke that can be made about Hugh Jackman in The Greatest Showman. Because mm -hmm. it's like, it's not the same character, obviously, but it's like, wait, it's like, it's almost the same. It's, yeah. still, it's, it's a little different. Yeah. Who do you I think, think I, was yeah. The Greatest Showman between the two? Oh. Ooh. I think the better showman is Angier, but that doesn't make him the better magician, if that makes sense. And I, and I think even he admits to that. He was able to captivate the audience maybe a little better, more of the stage presence, the showman. Um but as far as the pure magic, the awe, and just kind of the, you walk away with your head scratching, I think Lord and Fallon take that. Absolutely. Okay. And then, so moving on to kind of the score and the music of this film, um, I know when I watched it, I kind of got um, vibes of the Batman versus Superman um, with Henry Cavill. Um and some of the moments honestly sounded like Superman's motif in that film. So that was comforting to hear. But Anthony, I'll come to you. And then Connor, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. But um, what did you think of the score in this? Um, I thought it at moments was really strong and um, was really good. But um, what, did you, what did you guys think? Yeah, for me, um, ugh, I, I in my notes, I have it as a half star. Um, it was very much a soundscape was the feel I had for it. Um, I think because I was watching it, and this is just me critiquing myself, because I was watching it with Boston and with Connor in person, 
maybe I like wasn't listening quite as hard or, or there was, I remember distinctly there was one moment I was like, Oh, I need to like actually try to listen to the score a little bit. But then I was worried that by listening to the score, it would take me out of the story. <laughs> mm. and, and because this was a story that I was like, okay, I'm like really trying to make sure I follow. It's not something I've seen before um, that I kind of turned the act of listening off a little bit. Um, but what I did notice was it, it felt very much like a soundscape. It wasn't, you know, a big Marvel you know, cinematic, melodic craziness. Um, it was almost on the order of like a John Wick where it just, it's filling in, it's it's giving the tension. Um, so I, I have it as a half star just because it was, I think, solid, but nothing necessarily memorable. Um, but again, it's not, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I think um, I'm kind of in line with that. Um, I rule the mid generally, I feel, I don't tend to be the biggest, you know, score person i think a lot of times you know it's it's best if the score kind of just goes with the film but then there you know there's some movies where the score plays a bigger role or like it really stands out um i think for nolan like interstellar is one of those that has a really iconic score but generally for him i feel he he tends to make a score that just kind of goes with the flow of the movie and doesn't doesn't do too much or try to distract you and i, th I think like anthony was saying this is like a movie for sure where that's the case and like the the focus is more on the story and kind of I see him using the score to kind of just add a little bit more emotion to the emotional beats and kind of you know add a contemplative tone whenever you're kind of trying to work out the mystery so it's you know it's it's not as standout like you said as like you know an action movie or even here like you'd imagine for London in this time period that maybe there would be more like songs or kind of like more playfulness with the music mm -hmm. or you know, maybe we would like, whenever they're in the bar, you know, they're not like singing or anything, or there's not like a lot of fanfare. Like it's generally pretty, pretty relaxed. And we just kind of get some swells. Like whenever he goes to see Tesla, there's like mysteriousness. Whenever, you know, we're, we're seeing the revelation at the end, there's like that feeling that kind of intensifies it. But for the most part, it's not like, it's not trying to do too much. So I, I agree that it doesn't stand out, but I think that's, kind of the power of it is that it just kind of enhances what's on screen and kind of doesn't, you know, doesn't distract you or kind of like add too much emphasis, you know, instead you're able to just kind of be in awe of, of what's actually happening. Yeah. If I can jump back in real quick, I think I would argue that uh, Christopher Nolan learned how to appreciate a good score as he's uh, grown in his career and has worked more with Hans Zimmer. I think I saw Hans was yeah. like an executive, like he wasn't the composer, but his his name was in the credits mm. there somewhere. Um, yeah. So I'm interested if like hmm, maybe that was the beginning of like their partnership. Um, and yeah. I, I've said this before, but I think a, a good score it takes good writing to like let there be room to have a score that that kind of swells and is something that your attention is drawn to, but that doesn't take you out of the story. And I think maybe with this one outside of you know the couple big moments of like oh all the lights have lit up or like the big reveal at the end um there wasn't a lot of like space to have a score fill that space more um which again is doesn't make it bad or good it's just that's how this movie is structured uh, and, and so i think that's mm -hmm. one of the things that leads to the score kind of not really being memorable because there wasn't like space just to like have it be its thing yeah yeah it makes you wonder you know what what if Hans Zimmer was was involved with this one? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. if if he did the whole score like for some of the later movies. Yeah. 
I feel like a lot of the times when the score like really sings or I mean, we kind of talked about this last time when there's like silence. And I and in this sense, I don't mean silence musically. I mean, when there's no dialogue. And I feel like this movie was just full of a lot of dialogue. Um, so I don't know that there was really a lot of opportunity for there just to be a focus on the score, which I'm not upset about. It's just an observation, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I mean, I also gave it like a half star personally. Um, but I didn't think that it needed to be more than what it was. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I agree with that. I gave it a half star. I think I'm curious to see what it would be had had uh, the score been more of a highlight for the story. But I don't think it really took... It definitely didn't take away from the film. Um, and it, you know, if they wanted to risk it, it could have potentially added to it. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. I just think I, I think of like Sherlock Holmes, um, and like that score mm. added so much. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a different. It's a it's like Hans Zimmer. It's hot. Yeah, it's like that's what that's that's what got me into Hans Zimmer. Uh, but I think like in that movie, the the score, it's a similar like kind of th- mystery thriller. Um, it's a little. It's a lot more light uh, than Prestige, but it added so much to the like um, period piece of the film. And it added um, just like even just that reoccurring theme um, and like loudness, I feel like added a lot to the character of Sherlock Holmes. I think it would have been interesting to have. Um, I'm sure there were themes for each character in this film, uh, but it, it would have been interesting to have them be a little bit more highlighted and see what that did with the story. Um, like in the way that he does in, in like Pirates of the Caribbean 3 at World's End. Like every every like main character has a very specific motif that is yeah. brought back, and that's that's one of my favorite Hans Zimmer scores. Like I I oh my god I love that movie I love that score, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I love it for for that very reason that you're saying like having everybody have their own musical motif is it's really special. Yeah, and it could have been subtle, you know, like doing and maybe this one had it it could have had it in this film and it was really subtle, but maybe a little bit. Either if it was there and it was subtle, maybe a little less subtle. Uh, or uh, if it wasn't there, <laughs> well, uh, do it, but do it subtly. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it wasn't Hans Zimmer, really. so... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it was Hans Zimmer, it probably would have had that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Boston, I was I was fully thinking of the Sherlock Holmes score. Okay. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like the same era that yeah. if you had something like that in this one... I don't I think having a, a bigger score either would have done one of two things. It either would have made the movie feel not as grounded and gritty because mm-hmm. you're just kind of sitting in the noise and the dialogue without anything extra or depending on how it was written it could have added a lot more to the feeling of obsession yeah that these characters mm. are going through and even maybe some of the feeling of like I'm being gaslit and my emotions mm-hmm. are all over the place you could have had that more because as, as much as I think we saw that performance I didn't necessarily feel that in myself yeah. Uh, of like, I mm. really feel how convoluted she's feeling and how confusing it must be. But I almost think, and this probably isn't the best example, but the first one that comes to mind is uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness when Scarlet Witch is kind of like 
going you know into freaky mode and it gets like really jittery mm-hmm. and eerie mm-hmm. and you're kind mm-hmm. of like it's a little creepy almost like the horror movie sort of mm-hmm. feel yeah. like anxiety it, inducing yeah, yeah. If, if you had something more like that um and obviously in Hans Zimmer's wealth of other we keep talking about it even though he didn't write the score uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you guys don't know who our favorite composer is you have not say it one more time um but yeah I mean like you you, you listen to Dunkirk you listen to Inception interstellar there there are like those moments where like you get the itchiness you get the anxiety you get the like i feel a little weird and so i think if it was written like that uh i think yeah it could have added more to it it's it but it's different right and i think it depends Mm -hmm. on what you're going for because i I think there's something to be said for something a film where it just kind of sits right and there's not too much Mm -hmm. going on musically and so you're just kind of grounded um but maybe that is just a a simpler movie and one that doesn't take advantage of the full range of uh, compositional aspects that you have at your disposal. Mm. Yeah, the narrative of the film is definitely driven um, by dialogue in this yeah. in this movie. And so I feel like uh, it would have had to sacrifice a little bit of that uh, dialogue driven, you know, drive uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to bring in a good soundtrack. And so maybe that's just not what Christopher Nolan was going for. Yeah. for yeah. Time. Yeah. I feel like, like in that, like on that note yeah i mean it was driven by dialogue but i really liked the way that the story was told we got that little like nugget at the very beginning you kind of know like it's it's being told in the past tense you're kind of going through and unfolding all the little pieces of paper reading through the diary these men are writing diaries to each other so now you don't know like what truth to believe you know, it's I really love the way that the story like unfolds mm-hmm. and then, you know, comes to a conclusion at the end. It's kind of I mean, they talk about, you know, this whole idea of um, the, a magical act where it has the three parts. It has the pledge. It has the turn. And then it has the prestige. And the movie itself had three distinct sections to it in the same way. And I think that that's like part of the brilliance of Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. You know, and I really I really appreciate being able to kind of go back and and see these themes play out in so many different facets of the movie itself. It's brilliant. So when thinking of the cinematography for this film, um, it was actually nominated um, for Best Cinematography. Um, I don't believe it won, um, but it was nominated for that. And kind of looking back at some of the screenshots and um, images from the film, very dark um and and a lot of the times when you see christian bale or hugh jackman it's they're honestly kind of framed like they're on a stage even when they're not on stage like the the lighting is very bright and focused on them while the rest of the surroundings is dark and mysterious um so i'm interested to see what you guys thought about um the cinematography obviously some of the you know visual effects and with the lightning and stuff um, I know when I watched it, it was particularly loud on my speaker, so I thought that was um, nice and interesting, and it kind of made it more more of an intense scene every time there was that electricity in the background. Um, but obviously, this one was made in 2006, so they didn't have all of the technologies of today. Um, but kind of lumping in, I guess we can lump in cinematography and the story together. Um, and Melissa, you touched on it, but um, what do we think about this? I know for me, I felt like the ending was kind of spoiled a little bit um once fallon kind of became an integral part of it i kind of knew that okay 
Christian Bale has a, a brother or a double or something like that. Like it, it, it was kind of ruined for me very early. Um, and I kind of saw that coming. Um, but I'm interested to see what you guys thought about the story overall. I, I want to ask a question to Connor. Uh, in all of the movies that you've seen and reviewed, how do you approach kind of critiquing story and cinematography? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for, for me, since I'm a writer, like the, for basically any movie, the story, I think, and the writing is, is probably the most important part for me. And kind of all of the other elements should, you know, should work towards the end of making the story work out well and be, you know, told the best it can. I think maybe that's why oftentimes, like, I don't tend to notice the cinematography as much or the, you know, the score as much unless it's like, you know, very strong and adding a lot or it's, you know, very bad and kind of distracts from the film. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think when it comes to story for me, I'm, I'm that's kind of the main thing I'm thinking about is, you know, how is the writing? How, how is everything coming together? You know, with this movie, like the actual structure is really important. Um, and that's, that's something I consider a lot. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure a good way to explain how I approach it, but I, I think for sure I'm just, I'm always conscious of, you know, what, what is the control of information like, you know, how are we seeing the characters develop? Are we getting enough development? If it's a movie with romance, like, are we getting enough to really believe that, um, you know, things like that. I, I think I always am wanting a lot of depth and wanting there to you know, feel like there's a sense of satisfaction and like everything is kind of well done. Um, like what Melissa was saying, I I really love the structure of this film, how it kind of works exactly like a magic trick and kind of presents filmmaking as magic in a way. But obviously for the characters in the movie and in real life, like magic is not really magic. It's it's an act. It's you know, it's a trick, an illusion. Mm -hmm that people work really hard to put together. Um, but with this one, you know, they, they tell us from the beginning, you know, there's three parts of a trick. And then the movie works out that way with three parts where we're kind of presented with, you know, this complex problem that we can't work our our way through. And then we, we kind of see the disappearance, like in a disappearing trick. And then we kind of get to see it unravel and kind of get the background of everything. And they, they say, you know, in, a, in the movie, and we, we see with, um, I think whenever Borden shows Sarah one of his tricks, she's like, oh, well, it's so simple. You know, it's not that impressive whenever I see how you do it. Mm. I should have known the whole time. And they, you know, they say, like, once you know kind of how things work, it's not really as exciting. You don't, you know, you don't want to know. You want to believe in the magic and you want to see the magic, but... Um, I think Boston might have touched on this or we talked about it before, but this is one of those movies where you enjoy being in the dark and then you, you may or may not enjoy even more like watching it again and seeing all the little Easter eggs, all the, all the cool ways that, that things connect. So I think out of um, a lot of the movies I've seen, this one feels really rewarding to watch again. Obviously there's, there's a lot of movies like that, but I, 
I feel like out of all of Christopher Nolan's movies, this is like the easiest to rewatch. Mm. <laughs> um, I love Interstellar, and it, it's probably tied for this movie as one of my favorites. But the first time I watched that, I was like, I don't know if I can ever watch that again. <laughs> um, you know, it, especially because it's so long. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's you know three hours. I, I did end up watching it again, and it, it flew by, and I I loved it just as much. But um, yeah, I mean, same with Tenet. You're like, I don't even want to think about it. Like, yeah. too much. I want to try to go through um, the experience again. Like, oh, yeah. I had the same with Oppenheimer. I was like, Oppenheimer's so great, but I don't think I have interest in ever seeing it again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but but this one like feels really contained and tight, and it's it's fun to revisit. It's fun to talk about. Um, you know, you can you can think a lot about it and like feel like you've answered a lot of the questions, but then there's still like little intangibles that you can you can continue to think about mm. um so anyway i'm I'm kind of talking in circles but um yeah I, I love the structure of this i love the the character development um not everything goes so deep but i think he he picked a couple of really important themes like obsession um kind of being an artist and wanting to um you know be the best be better than others i think especially for angier we see this desire to like not just be the best, but kind of like transcend what it means to be a magician, what it means to be an artist. He's not satisfied with just being the best, but he wants to like be novel to do something that no one else has done before. Mm. And I, I think as someone who's really into art and someone who writes, I have that same kind of feeling of like, you know, what can I do that's really going to be impressive? That's going to help me be remembered. Um, you know, how, how can I really do something that makes me feel like I've accomplished something? Um, I think the characters really capture that. And then we, we see it work out with everyone else too, like with with Borden and Fallon, like they're so dedicated to their art that they're willing to, you know, chop off fingers to to ruin a marriage, to you know, like take take a bullet, you know, because they've they've messed with Angier. Um just there you know, there's so much I think that shows the the cautionary tale of getting too obsessed with success or like giving yourself for your art um and maybe maybe nolan i think um in in oppenheimer maybe we we see that but i I think maybe here he starts to kind of explore some of that in himself i'm sure he deals with that desire to like be the best you know to do something new to really put all of himself into his work Mm -hmm. and this may reflect some of that like back and forth of is it really worth it you know what do you lose to really be the best of your craft um, things like that. So I, I think there's a lot going on in the story, but at the same time, I, I find myself so impressed with it because it's it's so accessible. It's a movie I think anybody can come into and take a lot away from to be able to see the themes, to to work out all the, the all the intricacies of it. Mm. I had an interesting thought, and I, I'm curious what people think. I, I like what you said, Connor, that you think you know maybe Christopher Nolan was feeling some of that pressure from the art form of how do I make mm. something memorable. Um, Christopher Nolan's really well known for being very adamant about using film still. So I'm curious how maybe you all think of the desire to be great, but maybe hesitance to embrace new technologies or new aspects of filmmaking and whether those two things can kind of like, like how do you rectify those two things? Is it, does it seem like those go together or or no? As long as it's not used like a gimmick or a crutch, um, then I think 
the those kinds of decisions reveal a passion and like a style it's like you know it's mm. they're they're very intentionally they're very intentional about what they're producing and how it i mean it's it's film so it's visual it's at most like at first and foremost it's a visual uh medium uh and so they're being very intentional with what it looks like the you know the aspect ratio and everything like that like all of that is is baked into it and so as long as it is because that is what they're passionate about and that's what they're going for i think that plays and that and i think that shows if it's just like uh well i just think this is better and i'm doing it you know it's more flippant i think it doesn't read into the style of the film as much it doesn't read into it um and so in, in that case it would be just maybe just stubbornness but um I haven't I haven't gone into the different directors and what they like and why they like it enough to really give too many examples. Um, the only the only one I know about is like from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I know Charlie Day was really really adamant on the four three aspect ratio that they were using, yeah. and eventually they switched um, to more modern technology, and it does show. The show is cool. quite a bit different when they make that switch. It was a lot grittier. It was a lot dirtier, and just like that downtown nasty philadelphia bar feel and then it kind of went a little bit more hollywood and they actually joke about it throughout the series as well um, and they talk a lot about it on their podcast and so that's the only reason i know but um that was an example of uh someone who wanted to make that decision and then ended up backing off of it because the other creators um and it did show and so i don't know i think it i think it matters and i think it it can be a great thing so a Christopher Nolan movie not shot in IMAX film would feel different. I, I can agree. I with think that. so. I think 100% would feel yeah, different. Like radically yeah. different. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. I think for me, I think of, um, I think Christopher Nolan is, is really indebted and, and believes in a lot of the filmmakers that came before him. I think probably with Interstellar, um, it's clear there's a lot of looking back to Stanley Kubrick and films like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the list, but I've, I'm sure he, he loves him. Stanley Kubrick's one of my favorite directors as well. So I could see his, his use of film and kind of older techniques in the way he does movies. Maybe even with this one, you can think of it as kind of a classic film in the way that it's, it's so tight and put together and like has a very clear structure that that kind of harkens back to older films that he would have grew up watching. And maybe that, you know, using actual film goes with that. Um, I think as well, too, just like, even if you only know Nolan for doing Batman, you know he loves darkness and grit in his, <laughs> in his movies. Yeah. And, I, you know, obviously film is going to do that. I think he's a perfectionist, too. And there's there's something about film, like having to actually use the physical resources and not just be able to, like, quickly edit it. Um, that ties into that and just kind of like you know film as kind of the heritage of movie making is like you know how it's been done um, that I think is a, a part of it too and I, I think we see that with other art forms as well that you know people are always looking up to the greats um, like even as things kind of move forward there's still always kind of a spotlight on hearkening back whether that's with like you know, music, like with hip hop, there's always still this, this focus on like the nineties. And we tend to think of like modern artists that are very lyrical or use like boom bap production as kind of hearkening back and like tapping into that greatness. Um, you know, I think besides a few artists, like 
not many that are like only doing a contemporary sound are in that same conversation. Like, you know, even if, if you had to ask somebody like, who are the best rappers right now? They would say like Kendrick, Cole, Drake. So you're gonna make um, some people know, mad with those picks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying those. Are, I'm not saying that's the truth. But I'm saying if if you ask someone on the street, they're probably gonna say one of those three guys. Yeah. And you yeah. know, two out of three are kind of very lyrical, and tend to you know have kind of classical production in that way. So mm -hmm. anyway, all that to say, I, I think uh, I think Nolan kind of sees the path to greatness, like as you know, taking the same avenue that's already been taken before, whereas. A lot of other filmmakers maybe, you know, have grown up with, with different people that they're looking up to. Maybe in some people now, like, kind of look up to Nolan that are coming up, and they'll they'll be obviously taking different routes whenever they're making their movies. Yeah. I, I don't know, but it made me think of, like, the two magicians in the movie where it feels like, Borden was still kind of like Borden and Fallon. They were still kind of grounded in the the magic realm. And if I remember correctly, he was the one at the beginning who was very adamant to uh, Michael Caine's character that a real magician, you know, like when they were just kind of you know the help, um, that a real magician, like what, really what he wanted to do was like create something new and something special. Uh, so I think it was, it was interesting. I didn't realize that until Connor, you're just talking about it. That it seems like. Angier, who kind of passed that off as like, ah, you know, that's not really something we need to like super worry about. Later ends up becoming obsessed with like that idea. Um, I don't remember where I was going with that, but yeah, I, I guess I guess maybe just yeah, it was reminding me of the two, the two characters in the movie. There's something yeah. else I was gonna say, and I totally lost it. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean maybe you're thinking about Tesla. Like, at first Angier is kind of satisfied, but then it seems like he's more and more wanting to move away from magic. Oh like towards yes. science. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Just that there's like the two avenues of how do you achieve greatness. One is by kind of sticking to the roots. Um, but Angier very much like went so far outside of magic. He's like, no, like it has to be beyond. It has to be real. Um, but not for necessarily for the sake of realness. It was still for the sake of like revenge and being better. Um, and maybe there's some commentary there on is does Angier, does he? Can we not call him great because he's gone so far away from the root? Um, and how, you know, when you get too far outside, is it like when does when does it shift into something more, something different? Can you still call it magic if you're using so many machines? Yeah, hmm. yeah, it's interesting. You know, at the end, like, is he still a magician or is he like more of a you know a he's getting into the realm of science fiction? <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. like you know, I mean, yeah, even in the film, like after he gets to that point, he's not even himself. You know, he's like a clone of himself. Yeah. And I think you can you can think of that from an artistic perspective too. You know, if you if you get so far from where you started, are you are you still yourself? You know, there's I think um when I was looking back at stuff about this movie, they talk about like the Theseus's ship analogy, like if you replace all the parts, is it still mm. the same ship? That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I guess I feel like you can kind of ask that question of Borden as well. Is he Still, I mean, he's a magician, yes, of course, but is he also not kind of psychotic for, like, the, you know, like, yes, he decided to live his and his brother decided to live their life as, you know, kind of living as the same person, you know, like, is that still considered 
magic. Like you have devoted your entire life to being a performance. At some point, you got to have a screw loose in your head, you know, to to have committed to that. Seriously, you know, chopping like off your fingers, chopping off your fingers, like just just for this act, you know, that that you literally can never, ever drop. Not even to the people closest to you. You've you've dedicated yourself to only one person that you can actually be truthful with um, and no one else, you know, but I, I kind of liked what you what you said, Connor, earlier where, you know, they're showing um his wife, you know, the trick and, and she's like, Oh my gosh, now it's so simple. Now that you've said it, I'm no longer impressed. Um, and I think that that's actually not true in this story. Uh, Like when it comes to the reveal of Borden and Andrew's tricks, which I really appreciate, you know, once you get to the end of the movie and you find out what the trick is, it's even more impressive on both sides. You know, and I love that, that they were able to achieve that kind of reaction, at least out of myself. Um, You know, knowing that Christian Bale's character was basically leading a double life for years. That just continues my, you know, how impressive that is or whatever. And the fact that Hugh Jackman's character was killing himself every night. Like that, that's not like, oh, you know, that that's so simple. I'm no longer impressed. No, I'm very, like, I'm not just impressed. I'm concerned for you. You know, <laughs> like you have committed literally your entire life up until your death to this trick, which you will commit every single night. That's crazy. That's crazy. You know, and I think that like these two characters, I think they were cast really well, but they're kind of two different sides of the spectrum when it comes to like the question of what what is true sacrifice you know christian bale's character borden was willing to sacrifice his family's lives he was willing to sacrifice like love and and that connection but it it was more about sacrificing other people's um like the world that they knew and the world that they understood. Whereas Hugh Jackman was willing to sacrifice himself, you know? And so it's two very, like two different sides of sacrifice. Boston, it looks like you want to say something. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, so I think, I think this is the, I gave the story a full star because I think this is honestly the, the part that I really, really like about this movie, especially after I watched it again, is Mm. that, um, the depth that this narrative can get into with a lot of different topics, like obviously obsession mm-hmm. at the like literal level, um, mm-hmm. but obsession about film. Like a lot of this could have been Nolan exploring his own like seeking of perfection or, his, or seeking of his own identity within the film industry. Um, and then there's just layers that you can bring that into your own vocations and your own lives. Um, I think I think that is what makes the story so phenomenal and so like worth going back to. Even if you only watch it a couple times, it can linger with you because you can just dive into it with a different lens and go out. Mm. But I think a big part of it um, was the sacrifice, right? Like that was um, Christian Bale's character. It was the whole thing is um, you have to sacrifice your life in order to have some like in order to create this perfect trick um 
and it started out with the first that magician who had the you know who was pretending to be disabled um, so that they could do this trick. And I think that um, Christian Bale's character sacrificed their own life, like both of their his characters sacrificed their life with they yes they were gaslighting everyone around them, um, but that commitment to the fraud, that commitment to the mm. lie, it ruined their lives as well. Um, it, yeah. it it took them, like, yes, they couldn't love, but not only could they not love, their loved ones couldn't fully love them. They couldn't mm-hmm. be their own individuals. They couldn't be their own, like, fullness. Um, and it, we were talking about it afterwards, and I was saying, like, I feel like they could have done the trick in where one brother just kind of didn't exist, and the other one fully, like, committed, or, like, by the end, if you tell just your wife and you tell just Scarlett Johansson, then sure, the, the trick is, is kind of broken a little bit, but at least to everyone else, you know, you're only giving up like one identity and you get to keep one and commit to that. Um, mm-hmm. But they didn't do that. They committed entirely. Like, I think they put their life, they put their desires to death so that they could perform this and have this great craft. And I think that Nolan is saying that with film, or at least with his passion, that he has to sacrifice to some extent his family in order to do so well. Like he's mm-hmm. his first love is the trick. It's the film, right? Or at least that was for Christian Bale. His first love was magic. And so everything else came mm-hmm. second, right? Mm-hmm. In the way that he did things. And I think that's like the whole topic of obsession bleeds into this obsession for doing your craft well, right? Doing mm-hmm. it perfectly, um, and that obsession will inevitably lead you to, if you're going to stay committed to it, self-sacrifice. And that mm-hmm. self-sacrifice is what enables your craft to be so well. And I think a part of the film was the other people realizing that truth and like being forced on that path because um, Hugh Jackman's character, he, I mean, he, at the start of the film, he disagreed. No, no, it's about the theatrics. It's about how you present it. Um, and if you look at film, then that's like the spectacle, the Marvel, the um, Fast Furious, whatever. Like it's it's just about, you know, the big flashy stuff and people get carried away and they love that, which isn't wrong. Um, but if you're trying to produce something, you know, to this higher level, uh, it has to be more than spectacle. Right. It has to there has to be this level of passion, this level of commitment and obsession that leads to sacrifice. And Hugh Jackman's character ended up giving his entire life over to that obsession um just like uh christian bale's character and so i think if anything the story says the opposite that they're not different is that they Mm. thought they were different but ended up being like the same um and that is the depravity of it in the in the like moral standpoint is oh my gosh you sacrificed so much and you forced other people to sacrifice so much for your obsession and that's something that is worth it yeah, it's complicated yeah. because you did yeah. produce something fantastic, but was the cost worth it? You know, like, mm-hmm. is is that level of perfection what we should be striving for? And I think yeah. that's just the beauty of the narrative uh, is that yeah. it leaves you wondering. It's not it's not as open as um, Inception was where you're like, oh, is it real or is it not real all the way throughout? You know, but it, it yeah. does bring you to that question of that thing that you love. How much do you love it and how much are you willing to sacrifice for it? And is that worth it? Um, yeah. it's just a really engaging question. And so, yeah, I, I can't stop thinking about, <laughs> I don't know why, like Christian Bale's character and the fact that they're twins. So a little bit of backstory, my boyfriend is a twin hmm. and I live with him and his twin brother. 
Oh. So, yeah. So, yeah, we got little it's too little, real. Little cups. It's too yeah, real. it's 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 pretty it's pretty weird to think about. But they so they are mirror twins. Um, and for those of you who don't know what that is, they they are basically like looking at a mirror. Uh, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Basically, when the egg splits in the womb, it doesn't create an identical copy. It creates an opposite copy. Okay. So they are they are identical, but my boyfriend is left-handed and his brother is right-handed. Like one has 20/20 vision and the other one needed LASIK. You know, like they're they're weird things about them are completely the opposite while they also look relatively identical, you know? And I'm just thinking about like the dedication that it would have taken a person. I could not. First of all, I'd be pissed. Like if I, <laughs> I would be pissed. I would be pissed. Who wouldn't be pissed? Yeah. But like I, I have always been able to tell the difference between those two boys. I can tell the difference between them when they're not in the same room and when they are, when they're wearing the exact same thing, and they are identical twins for you know for the most part. And I just find it so fascinating to think about the lengths to which they would have had to go to trick. I mean, I guess if if you don't know that there's a twin, you know, that your partner, that your husband or whatever is a twin, you're not going to be looking for subtle differences between one day and the next, you know, but I'm just trying to think, yeah, the lengths that they went in order to make sure that no one around them knew that they were two different people is just like, I can't, I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around it. You know, where they truly not, they had to become the exact same person. And it's, yeah, it's enough to drive anybody crazy. It's insane. You were talking about, think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, sorry. Yeah. I think um, for sure with, with both Angie and Borden, there's a lot of, think looking at like the duality of a person you know like how good and how bad Angie is at some points you know at the beginning he's kind of pure in his pursuits and he gets really corrupt with um with Borden and Fallon there's kind of like you know the good cop and the bad cop like one side of him is very sweet and like loves his wife and daughter and then the other is kind of probably bitter you know because the other brother has has kind of forced him into this thing and you know, maybe promised him some fame or he's getting paid well or something. And then, like, once Olivia comes in, there's, you know, I think that it's complicated. You know, I imagine behind the scenes he's like, he's like, look, I'd really like to be with this girl. Like, you know, I'm having to be with your wife, so can you do this for me? Um, so I think, you know, it's it's interesting that they, they really are such distinct characters, but at the same time, I guess as you're watching the movie, you kind of think of, of of Borden as just you know that kind of person where you know some days he's kind of yelling and abusive and you know lashing out and just frustrated and then other days you know he's calm and just kind of a regular person um, and I guess we see that too it's you know it's not very clear in this movie I know we talked about a little bit that there's like the Tesla versus like Thomas Edison thing going on kind of in the background of the mm -hmm. movie obviously there's the two magicians maybe even as we talk there's kind of like tradition versus like moving forward mm. you know there's like you know the true and the false you know like all those kind of like parallels are, are kind of working throughout the movie part of me wonders like when they're doubling each other started because i think there could be an argument that that maybe 
one of the brothers actually tied the wrong knot, like knows which knot was tied when Hugh Jackman's wife died at the beginning. But every time Hugh Jackman asked, he was asking the other brother. So it's like, mm. how, how would I, I don't, I don't know which one I tied because it wasn't me. You know, he can't, he can't reveal that he wasn't the person on stage that night, you know? And I, I also think about how long did they go between shows? Was one brother boarded for a week and a half until the next show? Or was it like mm. every other night? You know, I, I don't know. Like, it's just wild. There are so many ways that I can think about ways that, you know, they could have made it work, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was thinking about when that question of when did they start like kind of doubling each other? Part of me wonders if it was after they saw the fishbowl trick because that, that scene and, and when we were talking about it, that's when it clicked to me of the Easter egg of, he dedicated his whole life to pretending to be a cripple. And I was like, they did the same thing. <laughs> like, so mm-hmm. like, I, I, I just got that in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to, and maybe I'm looping back too far in the conversation, but I would do it anyway. Um, on the idea of obsession, it seems like there's at least two ways of, of being obsessed as presented in this movie. Um, Hugh Jackman doesn't become obsessed with like being the best and doing something super great until his wife dies. And it seems like that's the kicker for him. And obviously there's a lot of revenge and hate motivation inside of that. And so there's commentary on, you know, motivations for obsession and whether or not, you know, how healthy or unhealthy it is. But do we know when Borden's obsession with like magic started? Because uh, it, it seemed like it was less clear to me. I've, I mean, I've only watched the movie once. Um, this, I'm, I'm curious if anyone had thoughts because like while, yeah, they ended up both being obsessed in the end. It seems like they came at it came at it from two different directions, whereas Angier and maybe, arguably in the more destructive way, uh, became obsessed was after his wife died, and so it's a lot of emotional, you know, obsession, um, or emotionally motivated obsession rather than maybe the more intellectual obsession that Borden had. Um, I don't know, well, just a, a weird, an interesting angle that I just thought of. Yeah, remember. They they were working for that other magician. And then he said, or Michael Caine said, I want you to go to this guy's show and whoever can figure out how he does the trick can open for your magician, the guy that, that you're supporting next mm-hmm. week. And then when Hugh Jackman figured it out, or they both figured it out, he did the whole thing in front of his wife. So his wife was still very much alive. And so Borden's character right. got that inspiration before the wife died, not after. So he could have already from that moment said, you know what? I'm inspired. Let me grab my brother and started the switch. Technically, but Fallon was not introduced until later when he was like already married in the movie. Right. Right. And I I guess maybe I'd have to go back and watch and see. But I think at that point, yeah, like they, they both wanted to be successful magicians. And so obviously they would both want to like, you know, win that competition. But it didn't seem like Angier had that edge to him. Until after, and maybe some of that is like just the competitive aspect. Whereas at that, you know, before you have your own act, it's like, well, I'm not competing. I'm just trying to raise the ranks, and so that edge doesn't kick in. But even before, when they were both at the same level, it just seemed like Borden was more. He just wanted to go after it more, and he was less. He he was never satisfied with mm. where he was. 
Mm. And it just seems like that was more of an innate part of him. Mm -hmm. Or at least one of the brothers. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like, I mean, from the beginning, it seems like Angie is kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. Like, he's, he's married and, you know, like, seems very happy when he's with his wife. Um, I've seen some people say it seems like Angier is already kind of well off. I mean, maybe it happens throughout the movie, but like he can literally go to America and like camp out, you know, buy Tesla, you know, and like is just chilling. So maybe he like is doing magic, you know, more for different reasons than I guess Borden Mm. seems kind of like he's a scrappy guy. Like Mm. he's in it to, to make the money and like, you know, doesn't necessarily see it the same way that I guess like Angier really cares about it, like wants to have a cool name and like make a really flashy show. Whereas Borden's just like, I can do this magic stuff. You know, I'm not trying to dress it up. Like I just, I do the tricks and like, you know, I'm willing to do whatever to, you know, to do what I do. So that's, it's interesting though. In a way it seems like Angier is already kind of obsessed at the beginning when he gets that assignment to go like figure it out. And then like we see it, you know, quick, he's like, oh, you know, it's got to be this, it's got to be this. Like, he's, yeah, he's like, such a student of trying to learn and figure things mm. out. Mm. Good point. All right, well, this has been a phenomenal discussion and a great film. I'm sure just one of many Christopher Nolan films we will review. Um, any other final notes, guys, before we go ahead and wrap this up here? I have a, I have a quick fun fact. So... Uh, Connor, you're bringing up the is it the Theseus ship, and the the theoretical question of if you I'm rehashing exactly what you said, but if you replace individual pieces of a boat, you know when does when is it no longer the same boat? Um, I worked for a little bit in the aircraft maintenance world, specifically like aircraft engines, and I want to say it was the engine covers, but there's like two there's basically two pieces that in that world technically constitute the engine being the same and it's like you know the front cover the back cover if, if, if i'm remembering correctly but whatever those two pieces are that's what makes the engine the same so literally what you could do is take off you know the front take off the back replace everything in between or really you take something that has been in work for like three months you slap it back together and you send it out and it's technically the same engine and so you can like the, the metric was like oh we can turn out you know we can repair an engine in like one day but it's like no you've had all these little pieces in work forever but like technically it's the same serial number so it's that's an interesting like kind of real world how do you justify that something is the same obviously that's not you know a good theoretical or the philosophical answer but that's one instance of like technically it's the same according to like these rules so Hmm. are you thinking because like i was saying it's it's interesting i guess that all of the most important stuff can can change but the you know the superficial covers you know or what makes it the same yeah yeah are you thinking kind of in terms of like um angier's character like is he still considered the same person if he's like made a copy of or like are there pieces of his soul that like don't transfer is that are you thinking in those veins or kind of uh it was more just a direct like, oh, I remember this this fun fact. But also like that, yeah. I did have the question of how much is the same, mm-hmm. and like, is there is there a conscious understanding of I'm the new guy, or mm. 
or or is it just I'm the one that's here? And yeah, I, that's a whole other thing that I don't know. Clones. <laughs> All right. Well, that will do it for today's episode. Connor, thank you so much again for the suggestion and thank you for hopping on with us um, here today. This was an awesome conversation and you are welcome back anytime. Any suggestions? Uh, we love having you on. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks again. I'm always happy to be on. Um, so I'll have to hop on for some Marvel movies with you guys too. Oh, <laughs> he's going to have some hot takes. Okay. Oh, if no. you guys don't know, cause, okay. Connor boss and I had a very long discussion about the Marvel movies and the current status <laughs> of it. It's very long. <laughs> there were some hot takes. Uh, hot so takes. I think it would be fun to have Connor on because he provided a very different perspective. One that I think in the end we could all kind of agree to in some capacity not all capacities, but <laughs> it would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I like, um, I'm a bit of a film snob. I can admit, um, and have my gripes with the Marvel movies, but I, I like some of them. And I, I think most of my thoughts are warranted enough, but yeah, I'd, I'm happy to come back. Um, and I'm also happy to continue talking about, um, you know, some movies that are maybe off the beaten path for the, the cast as well. So, all right, sounds good. Be sure to save those Marvel hot takes. We will absolutely need them. Um, thank you again for listening to today's episode. Please be sure to check out our socials, Instagram, Twitter, Threads, TikTok. Our handle is at the CCAST Podcast, or reach out to us via email at the CCAST Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for tuning in, and stay tuned for our next episode.